Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. We're thrilled to welcome Vijay Pandey, General Partner at the A16Z Bio Fund to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us, Vijay. To help host this episode, I'm joined by my special guest host, Jake Beecraft, co-founder and CEO at Strand Therapeutics. Jake, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself and Strand? Absolutely, Chaz. Uh, my name is Jake Beecraft. I'm the CEO and, and co-founder of Strand Therapeutics. I'm also a synthetic biologist. Uh, Strand is a next-generation messenger RNA gene therapy platform for cancer and rare diseases. Um, and for more information on that, uh, listeners should tune into the previous podcast with Ron Weiss and myself, where we dig a little deeper into Strand, uh, our outlook and our history. Um, so, I would love to kick things off here with uh, with you, Vijay. Could you share just a brief intro uh, with us on yourself? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm a general partner at Andrews and Horowitz and uh, founder of our BioFund there. So I came on board uh, full time in 2015 to launch the biopharma and healthcare practice. And you know, the, one of the main driving forces for that was that we were trying to see a, a really sort of new type of entrepreneur, someone that was both very much like a tech founder, a tech mindset, applying engineering or machine learning or other forms of, of tech into biopharma and healthcare. And, you know, this uh, was something that I think we got very excited about and we'll talk more about it, uh, but also mirrored a lot of the stuff I did before. So before that, I was a professor at Stanford um, in a bunch of different departments in chemistry, computer science, structural biology, and also was chair of biophysics. And uh, there, a lot of the work I did was at that similar intersection between all that stuff. Uh, and for example, launching the folding and home distributed computing project, uh, where we used large, large scale computing for the time to be able to push what one could do with computation biology. I uh, find things like then, you know, uh, it took really crazy things to get that, much, that amount of compute power. Uh, but now that stuff is actually due to Moore's law, super cheap on Amazon. And so what used to be heroic now could become every day. And yeah, before then, you know, I, I was involved in science and started my whole life, uh, notably actually as a teenager in high school, uh, early at uh, early employee at Naughty Dog in the early days, it was uh, Jason, Andy and me. And uh, uh, it was fun to be involved in a software company, Naughty Dog is a computer game company, and to be able to at that early stage, uh, learn how to, you know, sort of do the startup thing from that early phase. Fantastic. So really uh, kind of building on that, um, you started in software and, and, and had some of these early experiences. What led you into biotechnology? What sparked your interest in this field, uh, maybe at a young age? Um, and would you say, you know, if you can boil it down, is there one overarching goal or mission that you're determined to pursue in this field? Yeah. So yeah, uh, actually, my degrees, both my undergrad degree and, and PhD are in physics. But even when I was uh, just in college uh, and looking around, and so this was like uh, late 80s, early 90s, it was even clearer then that uh, it seemed to me that a lot of the exciting things were going to be at the intersection of computation and biology. So 
um, uh, while I was in a physics degree, I was doing the sort of biophysics and, and computational biophysics of proteins and other molecules and so on. And um, I think maybe the most striking thing was maybe when I was in grad school. So I, you know, I uh, graduate college in 92, I get to, uh, from graduate Princeton in 92, go to MIT. And so I was uh, getting there for three years to get my PhD. And 92 to 95 was a pretty transformal time, I think, for us and uh, for the world. I think we, it was, we saw sort of the rise of the Human Genome Project and the excitement about that. And even just in that three-year period, it was kind of amazing at MIT. It went from like roughly having like 100 physics majors and 10 biology majors to three years later having it flip, where it was like 10 physics majors and 100 biology majors. I think we were all seeing sort of this big transformation in biology, uh, this great hope for what quantitative approaches and computational approaches could do. But that was like, like 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and I think uh, since then, so much has happened. Uh, but that was where the origin was for me. That's incredibly interesting. And thinking a little bit about, you know, nine, the nineties, as we think of it as a, a time that really birthed, uh, you know, tech where, you know, led into to the tech boom of the late nineties and early two thousands, but also seeing it from your perspective, it was, it was really also a biology boom. Um, incredibly interesting. So one other thing, you know, Vijay, you've been a researcher, a founder, an investor, um, and, and even more than that uh, throughout the throughout your career and, and within this field. So can you share a little bit about the journey between those roles? When did you realize you wanted to shift your primary impact from maybe the earlier research side into uh, a lot of more the investment side? Yeah. So, you know, having been in a startup early and then, uh, you know, having caught that bug, it was something on my mind. And especially even while I was at MIT, I thought a lot about uh, what I, if I were to become a professor, what I'd want to do. And uh, that put the Bay Area and especially Stanford or Berkeley, possibly MIT as being like key places where I'd love to be a professor and end up um, choosing to go to Stanford. And I, uh, the ecosystem here is kind of amazing. So for those who don't know, Stanford University and Sand Hill Road were the venture capital for uh, almost for the world. This center that lives is basically almost within walking distance. It's like a 10 minute car ride or five minute car ride. And so um, it doesn't take long after getting to Stanford as a uh, professor that people from Sand Hill call you uh, for maybe questions to help with diligence. And then maybe you join scientific advisory boards or join board of directors of companies. Uh, there are uh, companies that came out of technology from my lab. And just sitting here in that ecosystem, you, you, you're sort of a part of it very quickly, very naturally. And in looking at uh, the nature of that ecosystem and thinking about what I like to do and, and what I enjoy doing, there are a lot of similarities between uh, venture investing, believe it or not, and, and sort of being a professor at some, a place like Stanford, in that in both places, you would have a wealth of really smart people to work with. You'd, they'd come and bring their ideas, you riff with them on them, you might help fund their ideas and then help mentor them and help uh, guide them through challenges they have. Uh, the big difference is that in many ways, venture lets you do that at a much larger scale. At Stanford, maybe a yearly budget for my lab would be a million or $2 million. Uh, now on the bio side alone at A16Z, we have $1.5 billion of AUM. Just the scale of what I could do on the venture side was much greater. And I, you know, actually you asked me before about North Star, I think um, what I've always tried to do is to do things that I thought would have the biggest impact. 
that's why biology sort of was on my mind and to switch from uh, other areas in physics to biology and why venture seemed to be a, a natural thing to do, especially at that time where it seemed that the ideas that we and others were playing around with, you know, through the early 2020s were going from the place where they you know, it could be just interesting, cool things to do to where they actually could be really practically useful, where they really could actually now make a major change in how people design drugs or think about healthcare and so on. So it, with that North Star of trying to figure out how to have the most impact, uh, that was a natural direction to go. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think actually the the industry um, ha- has changed a bit, you know, not not just with more focus on on biology, but really the the interplay between academia and and venture and uh, and startups and executives and whatnot that that's been changing. Um, you know, we see this a lot in in Boston, even not just on Sand Hill Road. Um, but for instance, do, do you actually see a trend of of more professors shifting more of their focus, or even you know completely uh, completely diving in headfirst into into industry, um, such as you know either on the VC side or becoming founders themselves? I know I know for instance, um, you guys have have backed a few uh, biotech companies that have been started by founders who and CEOs who have left uh, left academic positions. So wondering if that's a, a trend that you're seeing uh, more and more these days. Yeah, I, I think it is uh, for two reasons. One, uh, that uh, there are so many exciting things to do on company side. Uh, and when I think about founders like Daphne Kohler, who was my colleague at Stanford and now is founder CEO of Incitro, or Prag Malik, uh, uh, co-founder, uh, uh, chief scientist at Nautilus, and and others who were Stanford, previously Stanford colleagues of mine, um, I think they look at what you could do in the universities being exciting, but what you could do with, let's say, 100x more capital uh, as being much more exciting, and that now there's the time to do it. I think there's another trend, though, which is that it used to be, especially in bio, in biopharma, that it, it was less common for a founder to become the CEO or to become a primary person and be somewhere you, it would be usually more the case where you'd develop the technology university and you'd hand your baby off metaphorically to uh, someone else and some other person would be the CEO. Uh, and, and you wouldn't be the person to sort of be the driving force. It was more of a, a traditional tech way to handle things. And that's a big switch. And I think I would argue, and I think this is something that, our firm really sort of, I think, thinks about and, and, and values is that typically these founders as CEOs or key officers in the company, uh, they really can understand not just the first thing the company needs to do, but really the full life cycle of it, not just the first product, but really what, um, how, how to handle change and how to go to the next steps and, and go beyond. And I think that ability for people to leave universities and not just be sort of someone on the side of the company, but really the main driver, that's relatively new in bio. And I think uh, that's, I think, become so enticing. And so I think so many of the best people now are realizing you've got the impact and you've got the, the ability to raise the capital and the ability to really be that driving person. Uh, that's hard to resist. I, I truly couldn't agree more with you. Um, and, and I have to say, you know, as uh, an academic turned founder CEO, uh, a, a big part of what's been able to happen in the industry for folks, you know, like myself uh, has been because folks like yourself and Jorge Conde and the rest of your partnership at Andreessen and other funds um, have been kind of pioneering this founder first mentality and backing people who are subject matter experts. And, you know, there's no real question here, but just to say thanks to you and, and people like you who have really helped us catalyze this, this movement within the industry. Um, so 
moving on uh, from there, uh, one question we like to ask the guests here um, comes from De- uh, Dennis Gabor, uh, the electrical engineer recipient of uh, the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. Um, and he, he says, you know, rather famously, the, f- the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Um, and throughout your career, you've been pushing the boundaries of the possible, creating and, you know, obviously investing in the future. Um, so can you just tell us, you know, in your, from your perspective, what does inventing, inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, so that's a f- super fantastic, fun quote. But uh, before agreeing with it, uh, I, I'm going to disagree with it uh, and give you the counter to that. <laughs> and I think the counter to that is that actually we predict the future all the time. If I could ask anybody roughly what time is the sun is going to rise tomorrow, roughly what's the average temperature in the Bay Area in September or January, next September or next January or next March, uh, certain things can be predicted. Uh, certain things have cycles uh, and actually business has cycles. Uh, industrial revolutions represent cycles. I think there are sort of more aggregate things that can be predicted. Uh, whether it's going to be cloudy tomorrow or not, I might not be able to predict that, uh, or at least like whether I can see the sun tomorrow or not might be a little more complicated. But there are things we can predict. And actually, the, for the things that we can predict, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And one of the bigger arcs, and I think we'll probably get into it later, is that it feels so much, I think, to many of us, and I, I bet you might feel the same way, that the arc that we're going through right now, let's say 2020 to maybe 2040, has a lot of sort of the general feeling of the big change, maybe from 2000 to 2020 in the internet. And where um, we've seen the show before in a different context. And that might give us some hints at predicting the future, uh, much like predicting the weather. We're not going to be perfect. There'll, some, there'll be some general things we get right. There'll be many details. Uh, some details will be right. Some details will be wrong. And, you know, that leads us into the question then, well, you know, details are important, right? So how do we get the details right? I would say that's where inventing the future is uh, as a great framework for that is thinking about what are the trends that are converging at this time? What are the pieces we have to play with and um, how can we actively take those pieces and do something? Uh, you know, I will go out and this is not even that I'll go out on that much of a limb to say this today. I think when we were saying this five years ago, it was maybe more um, out there. It really does feel like AI is a sort of new industrial revolution. And one of the hallmarks of industrial revolutions is that the, as they come, as they rise at the tail of a previous one, the new technology, interestingly, is not useful for the old one. So like transistors were not useful for cars in the 70s. They're useful for other things. And today, AI actually isn't useful for a lot of things in enterprise software. Anything that's on the Moore's Law curve right now, AI is going to be slower, more expensive, more annoying to use. But, uh, and so therefore, it is not going to help the old industrial revolution that we went through in tech. But there's so many areas of our world that are driven by services. And, you know, biopharma and healthcare are a very glaring example. Anything that requires a PhD or an MD requires, you know, super smart person and people doing things. That is where AI has the chance to really make dramatic contributions and really industrialize, really go from bespoke to some automated process. So I don't think as and so it combining these things of being able to predict the future by understanding the patterns of humanity and the cycles that we go through, and then thinking about what we can do. What we can do is we can look for the things that are on that service area that are big markets, 
that can, with AI, that they're ready today to jump from a services e-rooms law-like economy to a Moore's law-like economy because now it's driven by AI. Those are the things we should be going for immediately. Not everything is going to work in that transition today. It's something uh, where we have to think about what is relevant today, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And that's where we come in, and that's where inventing the future comes in and staging those inventions. But I think that's uh, what's ahead of us. And I think many of us are seeing that, and that's, I think, the inventing that we've been doing. Super insightful. Uh, I, I really uh, have to uh, agree there, and I think that along with AI, where I've seen both Andreessen and others uh, investing in companies sort of, uh, sort of spinning up, is um, is looking at a couple industrial revolutions that are all coming, both the genomics revolution, both on yep. reading the genome and the genomics revolution on creating. I mean, I, I work in the messenger RNA space, and two years ago, if you had told me every single person I know was going to be injected with mRNA, <laughs> I would have thought you were crazy, yep. um, even in my most bullish predictions. But you know, here we stand, and to see how these technologies will both all disrupt at the same time and eventually coalesce. I, I'm incredibly excited about that future as well. Um, so with, with that, I, I'll pass it over to my co-host, Chess, um, to talk a little bit more uh, about the venture side of your career and, and uh, A16Z uh, Biofund in general. Fantastic. Thanks, Jake. And, and Vijay, you're a founding partner of A16Z's Biofund, and you invested in the likes of some amazing companies, including Amata Health, Freenome, and Citro, and so many more. Can we go back a few years when you were starting the BioArm? What thoughts were running through your head then? Yeah, I think, you know, what we were seeing were things where the people coming to A16Z were, uh, and so just to set the stage, actually, I um, joined the firm in 2014 as a consultant. Uh, and actually, uh, it was a time where I think the firm created a role to uh, try to bring in smart people and people doing interesting things. So it was a so-called professor in residence role. And so um, I got there and uh, I, I was, happened to be the first PIR that we had. And there's been subsequent uh, fantastic people after that. Um, but uh, I didn't know what a PIR was. And I'm not even sure what the firm, if the firm knew what a PIR was. So uh, and I started to just try to do things that would be interesting and useful. And just looking for what I thought would be the next thing. And you know, I don't think this is much of a secret about venture capital is that the whole purpose of venture capital is to invest in the things that downstream investors aren't ready for yet, whether that be ready for stage wise or, or, or mentality wise. That's the sort of arbitrage. That's the role of venture capital. And so we're always thinking about what is going to be the, the wave that's about to break. What is the next thing? Not the thing that everyone knows is important like 10 years ago, or the thing that maybe will be important 10 years from now, but the thing that's just on the verge. And I think what we were seeing at that time was that there was this really unique property of people coming to the firm and people that I was meeting just in general, that they were normally founders that would go to a tech company. Uh, and actually, a lot of these people have bio backgrounds, and it's one of the most frustrating things that people would graduate, let's say, from Stanford with a PhD in computational biology, and they would go to Google and drop the biology part and not use the biology part. In fact, actually, and you could see it quantitatively in salaries, like an ML engineer would make X and an ML engineer in biology would make like 0.8X or something like that, uh, almost like the biology was of negative value. That was, that was changing, I think, around 2013, 2014, 2015, where uh, now these founders were coming. They had this great background in sort of computer science, machine learning, uh, and tech with a biology background. 
and they weren't going into a tech job. They were actually wanting to start companies. Uh, they wanted to start companies that were at this interface between tech and biology. And that could mean a lot of things, and it means a lot of things to different people. It could mean software, but it really, in my mind, it means an engineering approach, uh, not a sort of uh, empirical sort of let's see if we get lucky approach for something where we really can, uh, to some degree, engineer it. And I, I think that was a key thing that we saw. And as we saw more and more people like that, it created uh, both an opportunity and a challenge. The opportunity was that you know, biopharma and healthcare is a huge part of the countries and the world's economy. Uh, and so it's natural to raise a fund to go after that. Uh, the challenge is that actually now we've got founders that know both tech and bio. We need a team that knows both. Uh, we need a team that can really understand uh, how to build great tech companies, as well as to go very deep in the biopharma and healthcare practice, an area where there's a lot of technical elements. And so that was the real genesis of uh, building together a whole separate fund, where previously in the firm, there would just be one core fund. Uh, and actually now subsequently, we have subsequent verticals in terms of adding a crypto fund and a growth fund and so on. Uh, but I, I think that was uh, the genesis and the really requirement for that. And a lot of the mission I had at the time was not just to find these founders, but then to build out the team such that we could actually help them and invest in them with the same spirit that we would the tech companies, but with the great, uh, hopefully, domain experience from biopharma and healthcare. So now we flash forward about seven years, and I think it's all obvious for us to say here, the landscape has changed quite a bit in the last year and a half, especially with COVID. Uh, how has this kind of impacted some of your original investment theses you set for Biofund? Uh, do you think those have changed at all? And maybe perhaps as we emerge, hopefully from what is the, the tail end of COVID here uh, pretty shortly, are there any new theses you're excited to dive into because of COVID? Yeah, you know, I think if you buy this uh, sort of parallel with what we saw, let's say in the 2000s and 2010s, um, of, uh, let's say, the internet and mobile. Um, really, what you would expect to see is maybe two parts of this 20 years. Like the first part, you'll have this new technology. And it's, and actually, um, Jake made a great point in that it's not just AI, it's AI plus genomics, plus all the things you can measure, or it's plus all of the advances in biology. It's this combination of many technologies coming to a place at the same time. So, you know, there's the, the companies that can actually take advantage of that often in the early sort of first 10 years are not going to be the incumbents who are making so much money doing things the older way and so good at it. And it's unclear whether it makes sense to shift now anyways. It would actually, in many ways, might not be smart at all to shift for them. Uh, it's usually now the startups that will do this, and they have to typically go full stack. So this is uh, uh, the rise of the Googles and the Amazons and um, Netflix and Facebooks uh, in tech. And I think now there's a potential that there may be the equivalents in bio. These will be a few really big in time, maybe in 20 years, companies that due to the nature of these cycles, they have to go full stack. They can't just provide AI to pharma. They have to design their own drugs. Uh, they have to sort of be able to sort of monetize it all the way through. Uh, and I think that's what um, I think there's a huge potential for right now to, for us to be finding. And, and I think uh, um, I, I, there are certain examples that I think are, are moving along that way. I, when I think about like Daphne and Citro and I could go through the you know, people that we're excited about, uh, I think that has that sort of potential. 
And then, you know, in the, the back end now, then there'll be a, a, a chance to bring this technology to Fortune 500, be the equivalents of the Databricks and other companies that actually just uh, really work with uh, the, the big incumbents to help provide them with the technology. Um, so in, in terms of theses, I think it does seem like what we, we sort of laid out the, with the genesis of the fund has very much come to bear. And so now we have to double down and think about, okay, in terms of both predicting and making the future, what are the next steps that we expect to see? And let's add some real details to this thesis. What are the companies that will emerge first? How will we identify them? What will they look like? And uh, obviously you wanna be able to be investing in them and helping them to really make this big impact. Uh, that's the thing that's really on my mind right now. I think that tees up my next question quite nicely. Uh, it's become pretty obvious to folks, especially through the COVID times here that we're in the early innings of just a radical shift in biotech, what someone characterizes our evolution. Um, if we're thinking about the nine innings of baseball here, what inning do you think we're in as far as the tech bio revolution? And how do you see kind of uh, A16Z was a really key piece in the internet and SaaS revolution? Yeah. Where do you see the fund's role in this eminent biotech revolution? Yeah. So I'm more of a football guy than a baseball guy. So I'll probably say we're in the first quarter uh, of, of the game, but it's the same idea. Maybe the second or the third inning um, or first or second inning is pretty early. Uh, I think if there's a 20 year arc, you know, uh, from, he from here to from like 2020 to 2040, uh, we're, we're, you know, we've had the signs of it before, much like, um, the sort of tech boom in the 2000s was really fueled by things that started in the late 90s. Uh, I think that's what we're seeing. But I, I think there really is a 20-year arc uh, that, um, that we're a part of and we're just seeing the beginning. One way to think about this is asking some very straightforward questions like, you know, when will all drugs be designed by AI? that seems like crazy to be talking about now, right? Uh, it's like, it's so early, uh, you know, AI is contributing to drug design for identifying new targets and so on. But uh, to think when will all, that sounds, you know, that's probably uh, far off, but 20 years, a lot happens in 20 years. To, to sort of put in context of another revolution, maybe also from the 2000s, it was also that time where let's say competition came to Wall Street. And in 2000, if you asked, you know, when will mo most trades be done through computer? Uh, that might sound equally crazy, like how could a computer beat an expert trader? Uh, but then with the rise of quant and computation now and high-speed trading, um, all those trades, are, it's, it's almost now it gets flipped. Like, well, how could, a, how could a human being beat a computer at something that's inherently a computational game? Uh, and so I think that's the, 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 the transition we're going to see, but it is early. Uh, and so, um, uh, but I, I would say as much as we saw in other cases, even the early winners, I think, could have huge wins in terms of impact uh, to human health. Uh, and we're already starting to see that through COVID, um, as well as really starting to become huge companies over that time. Great. Uh, Vijay, so I want to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship in academia. And as, as someone who's been on both sides and experienced both of, uh, of those uh, sectors or towers of our ecosystem, of our startup ecosystem, um, I think you have an interesting and unique perspective. Um, so we've been thinking a lot about university entrepreneurial ecosystems um, and how there is tons of innovation, especially in biotech, uh, happening there. Um, so as a professor and as a researcher, um, you know, how can we best unlock the, the latent entrepreneurial potential of university researchers? Yeah, so this is a, a, a super fun, juicy 
complex topic. And I think there's a couple different aspects to it. And, you know, it might make sense to sort of just go through the whole sort of life cycle of an idea. I think in many ways, it starts with how a lot of the original research is funded. And there's great things that NSF and NIH does, but um, often the most ambitious, most crazy stuff, uh, especially in uh, tight funding environments, don't get funded. And so trying to think about ways to change even just research funding uh, to make it more entrepreneurial, where we're really um, uh, pushing funding towards the, the biggest big impact ideas, noting that a lot of them will fail, I think uh, would be a, a good start. Um, but you know, maybe to the real heart of your question, I think you're already at the point where this is already there. And, and there's even within the current system, there's so m uh, many things that come out of it. I, I think for, for start, that starting point, it's often really opaque for professors or for grad students to understand how to build a startup. Uh, like, you know, you don't go to like uh, some, some recruiting website and look for a job that says startup founder and you apply for that. You know, there's no one, often there's not a sense for how to walk, uh, who's going to walk you through that. In some cases, you've got faculty members that uh, this is old hat and they've uh, been involved in starting multiple companies and it just rolls and, and, and that helps. But I think there are many people who just are not familiar with the process at all. It's very opaque and they try to sort of guess. And, um, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of those guesses uh, uh, might be ill-informed if, if, if they're just really just straight out guessing. And so it's one of the things we've been thinking a lot about is how to really try to help educate people for how that process works, uh, uh, what are the best practices there, and, and, and what to do. And, you know, I think the bottom line that I think we're, there's a lot of similarities between the two, but I think people tend to apply what they know. And there's some key differences between doing great work in academia and doing great work in a startup that catch people off guard. And, and this is where I, I think people sometimes trip up. Um, and so I think there's a lot more we can do with education. I've been starting to write some blog pieces on that uh, to try to help. I mean, like, so one piece I just wrote was, for example, it, you have this uh, whole sort of portfolio of IP. Uh, what do you do with it? Do you have end companies or do you have one company with that? When do you want to go leave academia versus stay in academia? Uh, these are things where, especially if you ask your other peers in academia, the ones who haven't left, uh, they may not be the best ones to advise on it. Oh, that's super interesting. I'm sure those uh, resources are going to be really helpful. Um, I can tell you from experience, not as a as a professor, but as, as someone coming straight from academia with academic technology, um, it is it is a daunting task yes. to try to think about how to to wrap that into uh, into a company, and then really how to you know then talk to to folks like yourself. Um, I think a lot of scientists sometimes make the mistake of giving science presentations to VCs. Um, and and not thinking about you know the, the the whole picture and how how you really need to present that work. Um, so moving on from there, from a structural perspective, uh, academia is quite different from startups uh, and, and tech, uh, right? And so, is there a, a resolution to the to the trade offs between universities trying to squeeze greater returns from their IP? Um, and fostering a culture of innovation uh, and entrepreneurship among their faculty and students, right? Um, something that I think all founders who take fundamental IP out of out of universities have had the the inevitable battle with the technology licensing offices. Um, how do you think about 
that that trade off and how to maybe advise universities, TLOs and and such um, to have, you know, sort of a smaller piece of a bigger pie rather than all of the pie of a single you know, of a very small sort of quiche. Yeah, you beat me to the punchline there. I, I think, uh, I, I think so. Yeah, the challenge here is that um, o- people in OTL have to think much more like uh, sort of entrepreneurs or even like venture investors. And so having been at Stanford and having IP that then went into companies and so on. Um, so I've been on that side and actually having been an investor, I've been on there for both sides. You know, I, I know Stanford's OTL pretty well. And I think Stanford is um, maybe not unique, but is, is rare, at least uh, in that uh, they are, I think, for the most part, realizing exactly what you talked about, that it's uh, that um, you can't use percentage to you know, uh, feed your kids or to to do scholarships for uh, students at Stanford, it's always dollars, and a big percentage of small dollars versus small percentage of huge dollars. Uh, the latter is usually more worthwhile, and you know they've seen this like with IP from Google and other big wins have had huge pay- uh, payouts for Stanford. I think they have a few general principles that have worked very well. Um, first is that I think they see the value of having the IP in the entrepreneur's hands rather than selling it off. You could imagine like, instead of like Larry and Sergey getting the original IP for Google, which, you know, in the end, maybe I don't even know how useful that was compared to all the things they did afterwards, but uh, imagine like sold that to IBM. Like would IBM build a uh, search engine with that IP and would it compete with, would it become Google? Probably not. Uh, seems extremely unlikely. You, you want those founders there driving it. And what's interesting is that mentality alone very much aligns with ours. And I think to OTL, Sanford's OTL's credit, it is uh, sort of, I think, a, a very sort of um, venture-like mindset. Uh, the second thing is that, yeah, you, you if you ask for 85% of the company for this, you're going to kill the company or it's not going to become a very large company and other people won't be able to really contribute to it. So you, you can't do that. And, and so... Uh, you have to be thinking about what is reasonable uh, and really thinking about the big picture and and in the end. And this is, again, not like venture investing where um, uh, venture investors won't be asking for 85% of the company. Uh, there won't be much company left uh, to go beyond that. Um, but there's one last thing, which I think Stanford does uh, uniquely too, which uh, venture can't do, which is that in the end, um, Stanford makes you know, a fair bit of money from its IP uh, but where it might even make more money is when you look at you walk around campus and you look at the buildings and the names on them. Uh, a lot of those are alumni who uh, did very well and are grateful for knowing that they stood on the shoulders of giants and want to acknowledge that and give back. And Stanford probably makes more money on the donations than it does on the IP. And so thinking about this big, 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 big picture. Uh, and what is the big win and what, and what is the way to sort of build an ecosystem? I, I think Stanford's been particularly good at that. That's, in, that's uh, actually an interesting uh, part there at the end that I hadn't fully considered um, and, and maybe a model to, to get through to the TLOs um, yeah. or, or OTL, depending on what they, the MIT calls it, the, the TLO. It's uh, it's something I, I've actually spent some time thinking about, you know, in terms of how people are incentivized as well. Right. And, and, I'm much of the of the viewpoint that they should be having more shots on goal as well, yes. um, and really just I mean supporting their students, right? Yes. And that's what's going to give this school more more recognition, and then hopefully more people to 
donate buildings. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, final part here on, uh, on entrepreneurship and academia, um, you know, what advice would you give to, you know, graduate students um, exiting or a PI or a postdoc um, looking to, to spin out their research uh, or looking towards commercialization? Um, what do you think are the, the high points that those sort of folks need to need to hear and need to understand about that process? Yeah, I think it's maybe a couple of things. One, that people have to think about the business part from the beginning. Um, I've, uh, had people tell me, oh, look, the technology is so hard to do. Um, the rest will sell itself. And actually th that never happens in any context ever. And that, <laughs> you know, I encourage the, uh, the, these brilliant founders to take their passion and love and drive for science and bring that into the business side. The business side is not won't be difficult for them. It won't be boring for them. It will be interesting. It could be something that could be a whole new passion. And I would argue they would be really uniquely capable of understanding uh, that side because they understand the science side and, and, uh, and then hopefully in time, the business side. So that can't be something that you just leave for somebody else. It's like, uh, if you're going to be a parent, you, you're not going to have a, a, a nanny 24 seven. And you kind of just see the kid every once in a while, you want to be the full parent. You want to understand everything this baby needs, not just part of it. And so they, you've got to dive in. And the good news is, uh, doubly so one, it's not as hard as you think. Uh, and two, actually, I think you'll enjoy it. It actually can be really fascinating. That's the first part. And then I would say the second part that is counterintuitive for academics is that there's something that's very familiar to them. Like they always, they'll be searching for going to like the best universities. They want to go to Stanford or Berkeley or MIT or, or, or whatever. They want to be at the best universities and they want to be in the best labs in those universities. So professors who've done the greatest things, but they don't think often of investors as like colleagues or partners in building the company. I think they think of them almost like officers at NIH or NSF. And like, oh, I could get a grant from this one person, this person. It doesn't matter where the money comes from. I could get the grant from someone, you know, uh, in a whole other country. It doesn't really matter. I think it's a mistake of thinking about money and money as money in academia versus uh, investors are your collaborators and someone who's going to be helping. And the money is like the easy part in the end. There's so much money out there. Raising money is very straightforward. But bringing on the very best collaborators or the A plus people that you could be working with, you would do it in every other context. You have to realize that it's very important to do it in this context too. I think if founders who are brilliant technical founders with a, amazing new technology can deeply understand that uh, the business side and realize that they have to bring on great people uh, and investors have to be part of that, uh, the people who get that, uh, uh, they do extremely well. And I think it's something that maybe is counterintuitive, but for those who have figured it out, uh, 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 they've really taken off. So Vijay, as we talk about kind of the biotech revolution at hand, um, many people are, are coining it a, a tech bio revolution instead, kind of the, the inverse of the word biotech and really yep. saying that that means solving biological problems with more of an engineering mindset. Uh, can, can you just, just demystify that and kind of describe that to our listeners? Like, what does it mean to apply an engineering mindset to biology? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a really controversial topic, less so now than it was like five years ago. And um, it's funny because some people will say, 
oh, we've been engineering biology for 30 years. And other people will say engineering biology is a myth or it's impossible. Uh, and it's funny people saying that when, you know, universities have departments of bioengineering and so on. So it's, it's there's, but let me try to sort of make both sides of it. The, uh, the, uh, the sort of uh, con argument, the people who say, oh, you can't engineer biology, the argument they would make is that, oh, look, biology is so complicated that you can't uh, understand it the way you can, let's say, a silicon chip, that we didn't make biology. Biology was this process of evolution, you know, this weird, haphazard, complicated problem. And so you, you can't understand it. You can't sort of engineer it the way you would engineer a chip. Um, uh, and there's very notable people who've made this argument and, and use that as an argument to beat people over the head anytime you're talking about engineering anything in biology. Uh, and, you know, I think the counter to that, even from a pure engineering point of view at its most principles, is that there's tons of engineering where people don't understand the uh, first thing. I mean, that's what reverse engineering is all about. So maybe we should call it reverse engineering biology if you wanted to. Uh, that, and there's a whole process of reverse engineering that we can apply to understand biology, much like you'd understand anything else. And so I've written about this uh, fairly extensively, and, and we can go into more detail. But I think that's the first mindset for anyone who says it's impossible. I think there is that shift you have to make that even the, the, um, the, that complexity argument, I think, uh, fail, falls in, in the light of what real engineering, especially reverse engineering, looks like. Okay, and the second part is that, well, there are a lot of things in biology where we actually can start from a relatively clean slate where we're working in a controlled environment of certain very specific subset of things where, you know, it actually does have a lot of the familiarity or principles that we love in engineering, whether it be uh, modularity, uh, the ability to improve things gradually, like 10% or 20% uh, year over year, which leads to exponential uh, Moore's law-like behavior. There's all of those hallmarks are there too. So you can either, you know, try to disprove the uh, argument against or lay the argument in favor of it. Um, it's something that it's uh, the most uh, sort of surprising thing is that uh, even given all that complexity, the tools that we've been able to develop to read and to write and to understand uh, biology and frankly, also all the computational tools that help us do that have really emerged at a sort of very special time, at a time where, uh, and we can get in this in a little bit, where biology and advances in biology might be some of the most important things we need. I, I think um, that is, I think, what's special about the right now, about all this stuff coming together. And I think it's just a lot for people to wrap their heads around when you think about engineering something as complex as biology. So as a scientist and inventor, uh, would love to understand how do engineering fundamentals and bio approaches rooted in the scientific method differ from each other? Is there a trade-off between the two potentially? Yeah. I, and here's the, one of the tricky things about this, which is that um, I think it's now becoming very common for scientists and engineers to often wear the same hat or to switch hats. Um, and uh, in, a, in a sense, science is the art of understanding something and discovering and understanding and engineering is applying those discoveries and understanding to build products. And you'll see scientists, engineers might be, you can't necessarily judge them today by what they're doing because a scientist who let's say cares about the discovery or the understanding may actually build a product to prove that they have the understanding or the engineer may be uh, doing discovery 
or doing un, uh, some sort of seeking understanding in order to build that product. And so it's really about whose are the means and which are the means or the ends uh, for each one. But there's been a great blurring. And uh, a lot of this comes back to um, uh, the sort of maybe the end of World War II, where um, in the sort of post-world era, there was this sort of um, division between science and engineering, which uh, especially in, in funding, that maybe in hindsight was a little arbitrary. Uh, and that there was almost like this line of we have scientists and we have engineers. And I, I think that line was blurred before and I think is becoming re-blurred. And I would uh, strongly encourage people to, to, to think of it that way, because I, I think both sets of skills will be important. Coming from the sort of commercial side of things where I care about products, especially, uh, I think people who have a science mindset could play huge roles because there's going to be some discovery that has to be done. Uh, and that um, I would encourage them to think about sort of the shift to commercial, not as giving up uh, sort of what they love about science, but maybe actually uh, allowing that love to sort of have a potentially even greater impact. I think certainly one way engineering has changed biotech is with the emergence of platform companies. Uh, I know you've written extensively on this and for our audience, how does Andreessen define platform companies in biotech? Yeah, yeah so, you know, I think, um, there's some types of biotech companies that have a single asset that they have, let's say a single small molecule drug or maybe a biologic, maybe it was discovered um, in academia or by some of their means. And now the only goal of that company uh, is to get that uh, product through clinical trials and into patients' hands to help, um, help, pay, help people. Uh, so that would be a single asset company, not a platform company. In my mind, a platform company is one that has some technology that not just can generate a single asset, but in principle can generate multiple assets. And actually platforms are in vogue now. I would say 10 years ago, they were very much not in vogue, but before then they, they were actually in the biotech side, uh, actually quite exciting. And so there's cycles here too. And I think the challenge with biotech, at least let's say in the previous cycle of platform companies, is uh, you had a real, a genuine um, sort of conundrum, which is you've got this platform, you put all this money to build a platform, it's built a first asset. It's gonna take a lot of money to drive that through clinical trials. And you only have so much money. How are you gonna divide the money you have? Are you gonna use it to push your asset through the trials? Or are you gonna use some part of it to build the, out the platform and to have additional um, uh, assets that come out of it? It's really tempting, uh, and really, uh, it's really tempting to put all your money into that first asset, get the financial inflection point, and put it out. And frankly, it's really hard not to do that because if you put only a fraction into that, that will move slowly, and you'll be judged harshly by that. Uh, and maybe you get another asset or not. So I think maybe what's different about platform companies today is just the speed of things and the nature of the platforms, and the nature of engineering these platforms. Uh, some platforms could be just like high throughput screening, like we can do the same type of empirical discovery just faster. And uh, that's different than what we're seeing today, where I think while there's still empirical aspects and there's still a lot of work to do to make this all engineering, there's more and more engineering principles being built in. You think about how people engineer CRISPR enzymes, engineer cell and gene therapies, uh, even start to engineer small molecules. There's more and more engineering uh, coming into that. And therefore, there's the possibility of platforms spinning out multiple assets. 
Um, uh, I think a, a notable example that I work with is uh, BioH, whose platform that is based on data of human samples uh, in the biology of aging uh, and uses that to identify targets. That process now has led to three uh, assets that are in clinic. That's something where now the platform is spinning things out, it's turning into assets. And most of all, we can assess the company and its platform now, not just in terms of uh, uh, what we think the platform can do, but what it actually has done. So, you know, that's the way I think of a platform as something that really has that potential. And I think the difference between platforms now and before is hopefully these platform companies actually are going to be able to see the full, uh, much more of the realization of their potential. We're seeing a trend now where platform companies are starting in more of an infrastructure-based approach and yep. garnering partnerships and building data, all the while kind of generating insights for them to verticalize and go into more of an application-based approach and generate assets, as you're saying. We, we call this trend on our side, uh, Stepwise Bio. We'll actually put out a white paper on this shortly that you'll see. Um, would love to learn from your eyes kind of how do you see platform companies supporting verticalization within the industry now? Yeah. And by verticalization, what are you thinking about? Like, uh, you mean like people that bring assets all the way through trials or? Bridging the gap from a more of an infrastructure-based entry point into an application-based uh, endpoint. So kind yeah. of discovery yeah. uh, potentially like an Absolera. Uh, that started off with more of a services style that's now generating their own assets and taking yep. uh therapeutics yep. into the clinic. Yeah. So I think a common trend is that in early days, you might do partnership with pharma, uh, both for revenue and for um, demonstrating that the, that uh, there's a sort of outside validation of, of the uh, importance and utility of the technology. Um, but, you know, typically in these contracts, especially for your partner to, to for it to make sense for them, uh, there will have to be some sort of revenue share, uh, uh, and you often end up giving away some significant fraction of the potential upside you could have. And so I think you know, this is a natural driving force to have uh, companies become much more vertical and to really push towards uh, developing their own drugs. And here's the challenge. I mean, the, the reason for going vertical makes total sense. Uh, the challenge is that um, teams that let's say have a great skill at some area in biology or some area in engineering biology or some area in computation, um, those aren't necessarily the same skills for running uh, clinical development and, and pushing things through clinical trials and doing that later stage of the vertical part. And so um, it's a common thing for companies to say that they're going to then design drugs, but it's all, those are uh, a great example of words that are way easier to say than to do. And so I think the challenge will be, can you bring on team members that really understand what's coming and can help guide you such that if you are going to go vertical, that you're prepared for that and uh, that you understand what the, hopefully you turn the unknown unknowns into known unknowns at the very least and, and have a team that can uh, actually be able to do that. If you can put that together, I think that can work very well. And it's often a great marriage between sort of this new type of engineering tech bio with old biotech. Where the and I where I get very excited is when I see people who are very traditional drug hunters who maybe brought multiple drugs to market, uh, at, you know, which is an elite group. Uh, someone who's brought like three plus drugs to market, they're very verified air. When those people see these new technologies and get excited about it, that's also additional validation for for the whole ecosystem that maybe there really is something very exciting to the platform. 
And it's been an incredible episode, VJ. Before we come to a close here, a few rapid fire questions to cap things off. So VJ, uh, over your career, what is one piece of advice that is stuck with you? Yeah, it's going to sound um, uh, crazy to think, but because, and especially for, I think your, your listeners, I think they, like uh, myself and a lot of colleagues, we were all quite ambitious. I think for everyone's ambition, I actually wish that I even thought bigger that uh, like, for instance, when I review what we're talking about for uh, AI and drug design five years ago, uh, I feel like, you know, I could have been bolder, uh, could have been sort of really sort of laying down uh, even more. And so even things that sound crazy to be pushing because you think you're shooting high, um, always keep that uh, sort of uh, ambition level uh, as high as you can. Um, I, the things I regret most was where I hit limits, not looking for ways to go around uh, instead, instead of going from level seven to eight, how to go from seven to nine or seven to 10, uh, how to keep on pushing that. And something that I, I care a lot about, and I think a lot about in, in, in pushing my career and the colleagues and all this stuff, but like, um, it's, it's kind of, uh, the limits to what people can do when they set their bar really high. Uh, uh, is just breathtaking to see. And you see this a lot in tech. I think classic example is uh, uh, like Sergey Brin pushing the speed of the Google search engine from like, I don't know, one second to 0.1 second, close to zero seconds. And my understanding, and this might be apocryphal, is that yes, well, why can't it be negative? And that sounds ridiculous, except then, you know, Google can suggest the search you really intended for and just really unrelentingly pushing for higher and higher bars I would love to see that spirit, which is so dominant in tech, uh, brought to biology as well. And I think um, us, this crowd of really brilliant people, we have been underestimating the impact we can have, even as big as the impact has been. And I would love to see that spirit brought over. Wholeheartedly resonate with that sentiment and what a better place the world would be. And as we look into the future here, uh, if you can break out your crystal ball for us, uh, where do you see tech bio in 2050, particularly kind of with the uh, guise of patience as a mindset? Uh, yeah. How will the standard of care be elevated? Yeah. So, you know, we were talking a lot about this arc of the next, next 20 years to 2040. So getting to 2050 is only another 10 years, although we're getting further and further out of uh, off a plank of, 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 of uncertainty. But when I look at the world right now, you think about the biggest challenge that we have faced in terms of healthcare, the cost of healthcare, the efficacy of healthcare, like curing people of cancer, all these things. But then even beyond that, and you think about food and having food that actually engenders health, having processes that, uh, that keep us healthy instead of keeping, make, waiting to be sick, or even like more extreme things like climate change. Each one of these things have a huge, uh, or maybe even a complete uh, um, sort of uh, uh, fixes that will come from the bio side, whether we're talking about biopharma, we're talking about healthcare, or we're talking about engineering biology outside of healthcare. And, and I think 30 years is a really long time. It's a shift, you know, equivalent to sort of thinking about um, what we have today in IT versus, you know, the 90s when, you know, we didn't even have uh, iPhone is still years off. Like the basics we take for granted today are years off. Um, I think so much of that will be addressed by then. I think we would have shifted to a sort of mentality for healthcare where we are keeping people healthy rather than avoiding them to get sick. And even when they do get sick, we'll be able to address it way more quickly and methodically and in a patient specific way. There's, um, uh, we had Anne Wojcicki on a podcast and uh, 
she spoke about uh it was a fun analogy she spoke about almost like building a whole new city in the desert like the way vegas was a whole new city in the desert and that healthcare and bio uh, pharma and, and bio in general there's so much that we need to build but we we have a so collectively this community has a sense of what we are building and it's going to take a long time but by the time we build that new city things will be just so radically different and that I mean, the, maybe the biggest my the, the biggest change will be just our fundamental mindset of of healthcare being healthcare rather than sick care. This is a great pivot into uh, this question, VJ. Something that that I also think a lot about. Um, how do you see the balance between life quality increasing? You know, like making seventy the new forty, for instance, um, and overall life extension. And, and what should we really be focusing on first in your mind? Oh yeah, so I think um, the whole area of aging biology is, is also very young. <laughs> so, uh, 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 ironic, uh, but uh, I think we would really want to talk about uh, uh, health ex- health span extension, where we're stretching out the good years rather than just tacking on more difficult years at the end. And yeah, in animal experiments, there's tons of examples of how that's possible. There's huge differences between us and C. elegans and us and mice and so on. So there's a lot of work to be done. But there's, um, we even see it today, like, you know, the health span today versus 50 years ago versus 150 years ago is dramatically different, uh, just from what we have. So that will be another part of this is that uh, living to 80 is, I think, uh, the, the current median, but like uh, um, being healthy through 100, 120 I think that will, uh, by that time, that will be a high expectation. And um, it's kind of mind blowing to think of the world we're talking about getting into where bio will create all these resources through engineering, whether we're talking about materials, uh, energy, and so on, and be able to help with healthcare. And you'll have the longevity of it. Um, it is really the what we're talking about by 2050 is a world very much transformed by biology in every aspect. You will look around and it might not look that different, much like the world today just looks like the same world with some flat screen TVs and Alexas here and there as it did like 30 years ago. But just every aspect of our life, I think, would be engineered radically differently. Uh, and uh, um, it, I think the exciting thing is for those getting into the space is that there is so much to do and that um, you can be a part of getting us there. And so, uh, you know, I'm grateful for you guys letting me uh, get on the podcast to really sort of help build that community. And I think together, together uh, it will be a very exciting 30 years. Thanks, VJ. And really an amazing episode here. Any closing thoughts or shameless plugs you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, may I'll just wrap up with this is that uh, the, obviously this is not going to be done by any one university or any one company or any one uh, venture firm. I think a lot of the things I think about are building up the ecosystem and that ecosystem is not just any one uh, geography. It's not just the Bay Area, not just Boston or whatever. And so uh, I think we spoke so much about the work to do to engineer biology, but uh, I think we do have a little of uh, uh, rebuilding in society too. Uh, I would love to, to get people who are in high school or in college thinking about what they want to do as a career and realizing that I think that we are sort of ending uh, or seeing that we are reaching the end of the industrial revolution in, in pure tech. And there's still many things to do there, but like uh, this is the ground floor exciting times for the industrial revolution in biology. Uh, and uh, excited to have as many people as they can join this, uh, uh, join this revolution. 
Could not agree more. And uh, the community aspect of biotech is something that we've really tried to make big strides on on our side. And thanks for your support and your colleagues and Jason's support in helping us do so and looking forward to our continued collaborations. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. Thank you. Thanks, BJ, for an incredible episode. We're grateful for your time and appreciate you joining us. Talk to you soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.